Today on the Marshall Pro Podcast, we have part two of your week in IndyCar listener Q&A. I have about a half hour to dive into the first question or two or who knows how many. And then when we get back uh, much later in the day from our various appointments running around the Bay Area, going to dive in and get to a heck a bunch of questions that y'all have sent in. Thank you as always. Uh, been looking forward to this, getting to part two. Just really have not had the time. So here we are. Hopefully uh, it all works out. Uh, let's see. Going to say thank you as always. Great questions, fun questions put together by our pal Tim Falkowitz. Also, Cooper Tires, y'all rock. Thank you for supporting us. The Justice Brothers, you're my heart. You really are. Longtime family friends and great supporters of what we do here. TorontoMotorsports.com. They're my Canadian heart. How could you not love them? We do so much fun stuff together. And finally, you keep my head safe, Bell Racing Helmets USA, and many other drivers, uh, peoples, and average persons heads safe with your amazing products so big thanks to all them and now let's get rolling uh i don't even yeah we're not even going to do a music bed we got the one that we just faded out and uh, we're just going to keep going going to kick off this is going to visit for a little bit here this is from our pal ryan terpstra says mp i know it's been a while since you've been to a racetrack and played with your camera uh did you remember to take the lens cap off before you used it in all seriousness, how uh, how is it being back at Laguna Seca again? Were there any any? Gee, I can't even speak them words. I'm just keeping it. I'm not editing any of this garbage out. Were there any insights you got while you were there? Uh, and can you rate how the new additions for 2021 look after a couple of test days? Well, so the the silly and stupid first uh, <clears throat> did remember to take off my lens caps. So on that front, I did succeed. But here's here's a demonstration of rust, and rust is very real. Uh, so the last photographs that I took at a motor racing circuit were at Laguna Seca in 2019, I believe September 20, 20th, 27th, whatever the finale was. And yeah, now I had gone to the previous race at Portland, flew there and back, and during that flight, the significantly sized, a little bit bulky uh, dual battery charger for my photography camera uh, was smashed in transit. And so I don't remember exactly what I did. I think I charged my two batteries at Laguna with the help of someone else's, but had forgotten that the thing that makes my camera work, the good one used for photography, not video, uh, yeah. So believe it or not, those batteries over the last 14 months drained and died. So I couldn't use that and had to order one. And that was a kick in the nuts. So that'll be here soon. What I had to use was my video, uh, camera and also made by Canon. It's more than capable of taking still photos as well. Just, I never use it for that. So it's the only thing where I had a battery charger for Ryan. So I ended up having to use a camera body that I'd never used for photography. And uh, I figured I could figure it out pretty quickly, and I could not. Uh, how to adjust autofocus and a bunch of other things. It was not pretty. So on the photo thing to close, 
usually the sign of a good photographer is the ratio of bad photos to good and it's tipped very heavily in the good oh the vast and this is a real number i believe 90 percent, right around 90 percent of what i took was just hot trash that went straight into the garbage so yeah uh it was ugly um so there you go as for what did i learn share this up front because it's important to know I did not go down as a member of the media, as a reporter, or whatever else. Uh, the team had mentioned that they didn't have any photos of Alex and really didn't have any of, uh, of Jimmy. And if I had my camera gear with me, I'd be more than welcome to use it. And uh, I said, yeah, sure. I mean, it's their day. They allowed me to be there. So um, anyways, more than happy to fire off some photos, which I'll post here on my little social media outlets that again, they're not great, but, uh, and also welcome them to use them as well. So anyways, uh, but didn't go down to be a media guy. Didn't go down to report, uh, was down for a little charitable thing. And so that's what I was there to do. But, uh, obviously my eyes can't unlearn what I know, what I'm looking at and how to observe. So I don't think I'd be speaking out of turn if I shared some insights with y'all here. Uh, things like lap times, uh, which I know uh, I'm not sharing because that's not what I was there for. And that's so therefore that's none of my business to share publicly. Um, I know that Jimmy did, uh, I think it was 167 laps, <laughs> which is ridiculous. Uh, it's That's a lot of laps. Um, at the end of the day, I asked him how he was feeling, knowing that he'd just come off of doing the barber test, uh, 500 miles going in circles at Phoenix two days before, and then here at Laguna. And he said, actually, I'm not, not really worn out physically after this day here. It's more mental. Uh, wow, this place demands a lot from you. Another thing some of you might know is the track at Laguna compared to Barber, which was just repaved. Uh, Barber, all the grip. Laguna, none of the grip. It's a super slippery, worn down surface. It's just polished uh, by decades of use. And so it's uh, a challenge to find comfortable grip on a hot and sunny day. It was cool-ish on Tuesday. And by mid-afternoon, it was notably cold. I mean, true, like folks putting on layers and layers, and certainly not much in the way of the track giving back tire temp to uh, uh, get those tires nice and happy and rocking and rolling. Um, Last quick thing that jumps out here to share, and I shouldn't say last because usually more things fall into my head. It's really fun watching Jimmy work through his educational process. So you've heard me say this before on recent episodes, and I'll keep saying it because it's important to understand. Hold zero expectations for Jimmy Johnson being a serious competitive challenger next season as a rookie not because he lacks skill but because the amount of education awaiting him is so vast he has to learn a totally new type of car he has to meet a brand new friend by the name of downforce trust that downforce 
he has to learn everything. Most of the tracks he's going to, he's never been to before and or have never been to in an Indy car and so on and so on and so on. So this is, uh, call it <laughs> a year abroad that's coming up, learning an Indy car. Year two is where I really am looking forward to seeing where he's at. But just to underscore how much education uh, is in front of him, I got to Laguna at, I don't know, one thirty ish 2 o'clock on Tuesday and had expected to hear that Jimmy was just nonstop going for speed and learning and working his way up to things, and that's the only thing they were trying to do, knowing it's his third day ever in an IndyCar. And that wasn't the case. Uh, got there, said hi to everybody, you know, hadn't seen everybody for a really long time. Um, and then uh, Dario said, hey, let's go uh, jump in, you know, the rental and go over and uh, watch a corner or two because uh, Jimmy's about to head out. I said, great. So I went over to turn three, and I think he came out, warm-up lap, you know, trying to get the tires up to temp uh, for however many laps stint he was going to do. And then coming out of turn three right in front of us, promptly spun didn't hit anything had a couple spins in the day again not abnormal but uh did a 180 coming out of turn three going past us and we were heckling him a little bit because hey you've got a indy car that's light you've got 750 horsepower uh just you know bring up the revs dump the clutch and do a little flick spin right and off you go well instead we had kind of the 97 point uh turn to try and get the thing uh, going in the right direction and so we're heckling him and giving him a hard time about that Uh, came in however much later it was and we went back to the uh, pits and he and dario waved me over and jimmy was like just want you to know i did that spin just for you saw you guys actually it was your fault you distracted me and you know he was laughing but uh just to tell you it's so awesome to see the mindset that he is in and having interviewed him a number of times, been a while uh, in person at least, but having always seen the guy as, yeah, he might be famous for all of his achievements in NASCAR, but you just do not feel that in his personality, right? There are some stars who make you damn aware from the moment you see them or speak to them that they are a star, they know it, they feel it, and it is just this whole whole expanse of awesomeness that, that should shower you while they're in your presence. That's not this guy at all. This guy is the most basic and hardcore racer you could ask for, and that's why I think it's a great fit with this team in particular. So forget the seven-time anything and forget the wins, forget all that stuff. This guy's mindset is one of, I am a total novice. I'm a total rookie. I'm coming in with a completely zeroed slate and treat me that way. Talk to me that way. Um, This is rookie IndyCar driver, Jimmy, not guy who's had a great career. He's transitioning from into this. And so that approach it's everything he needs. So that's why the guy is going to impress us, just not right away. But I mentioned the spin, and I mentioned some of that stuff because what he was going out to do was not to go out and go hard and attack the track. 
he was being sent out by Chris Simmons, Dario's multiple championship, Indy 500 winning race engineer, Dixon's multiple championship winning engineer who moved into a new kind of overarching performance director role for 2020. Uh, good old Pushy Loose uh, was on the timing stand for this test with Jimmy. Not saying he's going to be his engineer next year, just he was just looking after him for this test. But Pushy Loose, who knows exactly what he wants and exactly how to uh, train a driver, get a driver up to speed. This wasn't the let's just go pound around Laguna. It was yellow laps. We're going to have you go out and practice doing caution laps and many of them and saving fuel. And so that's what he was going out to do and was trying to judge how to do that best. Got it a little wrong coming out of turn three, but this is what they were doing when I got there. And that's what impressed me so much, Ryan, that they said, okay, there are core competencies you must have to succeed in IndyCar. So let's start this now. Let's not just focus on speed and, and performance side. Let's get some of this kind of brick-and-mortar stuff built in right away so that every test we go to moving forward, these are things you can continue to refine. So saving fuel during caution laps, simulated caution laps, a bunch of pit stops, hitting his marks, getting barked at a little bit if he was off, a little bit left or right, too far, too long in the box when he stopped. Uh, burnouts, right? Was Chip came over, we, we were chatting, catching up a bit, and, uh, oh, well, I'll be, hold on, I got to go over and tell him such and such. And uh, called Jimmy in after uh, he left the box, I think for the first time, and called him right back in to do another burnout because he didn't launch hard enough. And again, it's all these little things. Uh, Chip wanted to left to go over and uh, tell Chris to convey that he needed to use more revs on the front straight, right? I guess Jimmy was maybe shifting a crack too early, but it's just these little things where whether it is uh, the yellow bits, whether it's pit stop and pit lane interactions, trying to maximize pit in and pit out, uh, I guarantee you there are a ton of other little things too, but the items that make the real difference, right? You assume that everybody is going more or less the same speed, realize that some are a little faster than others, but at this level, everyone's pretty damn good. So it's getting the other bits really down pat and excelling at them going to help you uh, hopefully have an advantage or at least be among the best. So that was the thing, Ryan, that jumped out most of all. Uh, I know Dario is working with him, working him up to uh, where to hit the old stoppers and slow the thing down, putting cones out in the break zones and such of like, hey, you know, we're not giving you a really easy time here, but, you know, there's crazy threshold breaking and that's down here. Well, we're not going to start there. So what I want to do is back up a little bit. So putting some cones in some places and saying, hey, this is what you're hitting for this outing and maybe another outing as well. And then we're going to move it a little bit closer. And so this is, this is a hardcore effort going on to just fill the overwhelming amount of things that Jimmy needs to learn to be effective in road and street course racing. That's what he's coming to do. If this was oval stuff, frankly, huh, I'm sure Dario would show up for the first day, but I don't know if he'd need to after that because this guy had figured it all out and he'd be vying for wins right away. 
this totally brand new thing that he has some experience in, but not really with road and street, uh, road and street course racing. Um, really impressed Ryan with how hardcore of a test plan they had. And Jimmy was soaking it up and he was frustrated at times and was unhappy with himself. It's mistakes being made, all that stuff that thankfully is taking place, uh, away from, uh, lights, camera action type stuff. And yeah, he was a blast. He really was. And it was really cool to see the crew too, right? So this is all primarily on Jimmy's car right now, at least can't tell you what it's going to be when we go racing next year, but you know, more or less the entire, one of the entire Ford chip Ganassi uh, GT IMSA team crew is running the car. And I'm like, Oh, Hey, there's that. And there's that. Hey, it's, it's Phil Banks and this, and like just really good people doing that. Um, and then the other part here to mention was Alex Pillow, and they love the kids so far. Uh, he, he, he is in total awe that he's there and isn't quite sure, like, is this really where I'm supposed to be? You want me to be here? And I don't think they've really ever had a driver like that who was just eyes wide open, like, whoa. And that's so amazing. And that appreciation and uh, enthusiasm, it's catching on. So uh, everyone there said how much they love the kid. Uh, they don't really know him. They're just getting to know him. But in the uh, limited time they've had with him in the shop and then working at the track, they have really fallen in love with him and uh, love his driving style. So, yeah, him working with the amazing Julian Robertson, uh, I predict good, good things uh, are going to be happening here on the uh, the very near future and horizon. So, yeah, that was really cool. I'm sure there's some other things I have forgotten. Um, one thing I'll mention, and again, I wasn't there in an official media capacity, so this isn't all mine to share, but was was really cool to see that the CEO of an automobile company who is not competing in IndyCar uh, was there and came up. And I would be lying if I said I knew that the person was there and uh, was speaking to the team about doing something in terms of becoming a manufacturer, you know, engine support. That's not what I understand the CEO's presence to be. I believe it was more just a, Hey, was in the area and just wanted to see some race cars, uh, doing some cool stuff at a cool track, but nonetheless, like, (laughs) and I just say it's a real CEO. This is one of those, like, I didn't know who it was because with a lot of people with masks, well, everybody with masks on, it's easy to pick out the people, you know, the ones who you don't and who are in conversation with some pretty heavy hitters, you go, okay, you know, and I have no reason to talk to the person or interview them. So just kind of stay in my lane and then be told afterwards, like, Hey, you know who that was? No idea. And then you hear who it is and you go, Holy crap. (laughs) Uh, that was pretty cool. So anyways, fun day. Uh, some other good folks turned out there as well. Wayne Rainey was there for goodness sake. Uh, pal Bruce Canepa showed up with that incredible, uh, British racing greed, uh, for GT. So yeah, just a great day. So happy to be back and getting to crawl around a couple of corners and take some photographs as well. Uh, yeah, that's, uh, uh, I was, I'm a pretty happy boy. So thank you for asking. And, uh, yeah, if I remember more and I'm sure I will, I'll blurt it out here sometime soon. Uh, we're going to go to Tony chef 20. What does an off season look like in IndyCar? 
I know in stick and ball sports, there are workouts and training camps and blah, blah, blah. But how does an off-season translate in motorsport? Well, Tony, if we're talking IndyCar specifically, and hey, this is a specific IndyCar show, so I guess we are. We have rules. So probably similar to other stick and ball sports that say, hey, after the season, no official workouts or this or that until this date and that time and, and whatnot. Those things, by the way, tend to come through player collective bargaining agreements between unions and the series or league or whatever. We don't have one of those in IndyCar, but what we do have is IndyCar saying, hey, we control your ability to test. This is no longer the days of old where if you had a car and a driver and preferably a transporter to get it there, you could go to whatever track and do whatever you wanted. Uh, Those days haven't been those days for a long time, Tony. So IndyCar has very, very specific rules for what teams can and can't do in terms of on-track testing. Uh, So, yeah, I think for the most part, what we just saw at Laguna might have been the last one of the year. Um, Struggling to remember off the top of my head, and I'm also trying to find the testing PDF that I have, which would indicate... Uh, when they can actually go back out onto that good old Ray City track and uh, do some testing. Um, I don't have it in front of me, but yeah, so there's pretty much a blackout window here uh, and don't expect to see much, if any, testing. I just found it. I don't expect to see much, if any, testing for the rest of the year. Yeah, that was actually it. So there's nothing that I see in December. Um, and it looks like, at least at the moment, uh, the blackout window ends, what, I think January 3rd. So Monday, the 4th of 2021, teams could start testing. Uh, the blackout, let's see, coming up here between the 22nd and I think 29th. And then again, uh, I think there's a small window open then, actually. Uh, the very end of November and up through, I think, the 12th or so of December. So I don't see any tests on a, on the schedule right now. So if one were to pop in, we'd see. But at least for what they have right now, from, what, the 10th of November that we just had with Ganassi and uh, through the 17th of January, there's nothing on the books. Could obviously change, but... More or less what happens is IndyCar says, hey, no, uh, you're going to have a break. Plus, also, we don't let you do a lot of testing, so uh, you're probably going to want to wait until it's warmer uh, to get some valuable data. So that's how they more or less manage the off-season. Make sure that while there's a window, it's not that big. Then they shut the windows and really start to push things more towards January and February. And then, hey, we get to go play race car uh, the first weekend of March in St. Pete. So that's more or less it from a control standpoint Uh, in terms of what teams do. Well, they're busy the whole time refurbishing everything, rebuilding everything, any new major projects that they've been too busy to get to during the active running around all over the place season. Those things get built and done. Engineering R&D for sure. Um, yeah, uh, really, really busy stuff. So, uh, hopefully that answers a little bit of stuff for you there, Tony. Uh, we're going to go to our pal, Jim Kaiser, the man who brings haiku to our show. How many other podcasts 
racing podcasts in particular have listeners who bring us haiku? None, I say, except for our pal Jim says, maybe the off season, but there's no slowing down the haiku to which he submits. The tracks may be dark, but indie fans still meet at the unvarnished turd. Oh, even better. Forget polished. No varnish as well. Thanks, Jim. Uh, yeah, hopefully some of y'all continue to join us here in this little week in IndyCar nonsense that I put together. Uh, we're going to go to Reddit, and I need a name, please. How might Genesis play Andretti's plans for 2021 if Hinch is still the favorite for the number 26 with Gainbridge? Just going to throw this out here. Uh, the thing I've been thinking for a while and supposing for a while is that Gainbridge would be a delightful sponsor for Colton Herta. Uh, one who had some great support from uh, a couple of companies, right? Capstone turbines. Uh, they've obviously done a lot to try and help the gleaners Indiana food bank as well. I think that's more of a charitable thing than gleaners actually giving them money so much to uh to promote things on the car but that has been a lightly funded vehicle and so as the thing i've heard for a while and, and mentioned for a while i uh, believe the efforts to hold on to Gainbridge would be one where that would be moved over to their top performer in the championship this year uh, third place race winner as well and in theory, if that little machination plays out like I think it might, well, wouldn't that be a pretty awesome uh, clearing of space on number 26 car for a certain mayor of Hinchtown and Genesis and uh, Petro Canada lubricants and some of the other sponsors that have been awesome supporters of his mayoral uh, stint. So that's what I think. Uh, let's see. Trip Hazard. How you doing, Trip? Any faces from Formula 2 known to be looking at IndyCar for 2021, seeing as there ain't much room at the end in Formula 1? I've heard a couple names, but more of like, hey, I have an interest, but yeah, that's way more money than I can afford. Uh, Jack Aiken jumps out as one who I've had at least one team owner inquire about in terms of availability or getting in contact with the kid. And I've heard from those who've spoken with Jack who've said, yeah, he'd love to come to IndyCar, but uh, they need a lot more money than his sponsors are able to afford in F2. So where does that leave him? So heard a couple other names that would be good fits, but as for, and they have the money to spend, that might be something trip that takes a little while longer into the off season for us to get direction on. All right. Taking a quick look at the clock here. Uh, going to need to get rolling in about five or seven minutes. So yeah. Uh, let's see. We're going to go to covenant one twenty one. Have you sent stuff in before covenant or have you sent it in and haven't gotten to it? I'm not sure. I'm struggling to remember your screen name. So I apologize if I've forgotten, and if this is your first time, thank you. I love it when we get uh, either new listeners or longtime listeners uh, submitting questions for the first time. It says, hope you and your family are well. Uh, says, what's it going to take for someone to get inside the skulls of Penske Entertainment uh, that the series needs more engaging social media efforts uh, and one that isn't so dry and corporate like it is now? 
It says Formula One figured it out two years ago, and NASCAR finally figured it out this year. We're almost in 2021, and they, they run their marketing like it's 2008. So need to admit this up front. I do look at some of what IndyCar puts out for content a little bit in NASCAR. I probably see more of what F1 does. So I share that because it would be false of me to state that I have as good of a scope and grasp of all of IndyCar's social media endeavors this year to the degree that you do. I would just default to say that while I might not have stayed on top of their posts as much as you have, dear Covenant 121, I might respond by saying probably the reason why of the three series you mentioned, I said Formula One is the one that I see a lot of, and that is the one that has actually been the one I could talk more about. Well, that's because the content that they post to your point, is so attention-grabbing and really compelling. And yeah, there's just a real, real, whatever awards there might be in racing for this stuff, they certainly deserve all of them. They do an amazing job. And the video content, the constant clipping off, the, the great, style in which it is done the little comments and the humor and the just right it's just done in a way where boy if you're bored and you're sitting there at the doctor's office or getting the you know tires put on your car or whatever it is and you're looking to entertain yourself with a racing series output on the tweeters or the instagrams or wherever i'm just saying you can kill that half hour hour two hours on Formula One's feed and feel like you didn't even get to a a drop of the really cool stuff. So I would just offer this as a frequent thing that needs to be said. So yes, Roger Penske is very successful as a businessman. His businesses are very successful, successful and have made a lot of money. Great. Um, Despite Roger's business stuff, he is not just opening up the bank vault for IndyCar and IMS to use all of it, hire crazy amounts of people, and do keep up with the Joneses. This is where we have a, a distinct reason why what you and I see and others see with, say, Formula One's feed or maybe NASCAR's feed um, certainly seems to punch well above what IndyCar does. It's not because IndyCar is bad, lacks intelligence or imagination. It's that Formula One is uh, rich as bleep, and they spend a ton of money on a ton of things. And in this case, there is no doubt that they have a whole and vast social media team uh, working directly with the broadcast team and clipping off content just <laughs> never ending. Um, IndyCar isn't there yet. IndyCar doesn't have, to my knowledge, the budget set aside to do that. Just close here on this topic and say that, of course, it's always easy to spend other people's money and say, oh, well, what they should do is this, that, and the other. That's the easy thing to do. 
It never makes real sense, though, because you... Rocky, hi, pal. Our cat, Rocky, whose birthday is tomorrow, by the way. He turns nine, my wife tells me. He wants to be fed. He doesn't give a crap about me talking into a microphone. He wants wet food. This, for those of my dear folks who are listening for the first time, our cats are frequent participants and interrupters of the show. Covenant 121, if we can get to a point to where, despite all the things where we know that budget cuts and a tight year and a lot of losses have been the reality for Penske Entertainment and its new ownership of IndyCar and IMS, if we can get to a point where hopefully this year, uh, going into next year, they can indeed say, hey, I know things are tight, but this is really where the uh, the knowledge and winning the hearts and mind war is going to be won or lost. Um, we got to blow this, blow this department up. And I don't mean blow it up bad like blow it up like make it a thing put a significant number of people in there and turn this into just top gear overdrive 250 miles an hour type routine there's immense incredible content both new and a hundred plus years in the past to be able to access they are they try and do what they can i get that but to your exact point uh, I really hope that there's someone within IndyCar who says, if we have tight dollars to spend next year, this is really an area where we need to over, uh, over portion, uh, a portion because it's going to make a difference. Uh, last question for right now. And then I got to run. That's going to go to Dan Rice. Uh, let's see. We're talking about the business and investment aspects of owning an IndyCar team, and it got me thinking of the charter system NASCAR implemented a few years back. Could IndyCar move to a franchise-style model like this in the coming years as a way to provide a baseline for the teams and possibly the series balance sheet? Funny you should mention that, Dan. Uh, I've heard rumor. I I can't say whether... I can't say exactly... I can't say much about it. Uh, I would be unsurprised is that the way to put it uh i wouldn't be surprised my friend if this was floated has been floated already or gets floated here in the very near future uh the teams having a financial stake in the series beyond what they already do right which is an amazing amount but actual hey we have paid uh for a quote charter or a franchise or something Something that tethers a team to the series through its wallet directly. Um, it wouldn't surprise me if that gets batted around as an idea. For those of you who are old enough to remember Cart's franchise system and the some positives but a lot of negatives to that, uh, you might be flinching right now. But yeah, Dan, there, there's something that tells me this might be a thing. Um, I'm going to come back, get to y'all as soon as we get home. We got to run out the door and do some awesome appointments for my wife. And thank you for everything you've sent in so far. And, oh, we got a lot more to get to and I can't wait. So I'll speak to you here in a little bit. All right, friends, we're back at it for a little while. It's 9.36 p.m. on a Friday night. Why am I starting to record again instead of, you know, watching TV or doing something recreational? Well, uh, I don't know. 
uh, my wife, who just, I can't even begin to tell you how many amazing things she did this week in physical therapy and rehabilitation, uh, is taking a well-deserved bath yet again, soaking some beyond exhausted muscles. So taking this opportunity to try and get a little bit of the show done, I thought I was going to get this finished, getting home much earlier or getting home earlier. I'm rambling. Sorry. Uh, got home later than expected. Thought we were going to be home earlier. Didn't. Got home a little bit past 7 p.m. Learned that uh, someone who I watched for the first time in the late 80s in the Barber Sob Pro Series, what would have been the equivalent of probably an Indie Pro 2000 uh, in terms of steps on the ladder towards IndyCar, gent by the name of Jim Pace. First became aware of Jim watching him race on uh, in the Barber Pro Series in person uh, back in the day, then went on to uh, really significant success in the mid-90s in sports cars, winning the Rolex 24 at Daytona, 12 hours of Sebring, both overall. Uh, learned that he died last night, and in my usual stupor, only learned about this just as I was getting home. So the last hour or two has been spent putting together a obituary for Jim, who I know this is an IndyCar show, and a small amount of his career was open wheel. But I'm just telling you, this is a guy who at 59, who contracted COVID and was taken swiftly from us, it's a guy who was so universally loved. Everybody they came in contact with back then in open wheel and especially throughout sports cars, just one of those guys who, while he might not have been a big name, he's just one of those hearts of the paddock. So sad night. Sad, sad night for sure. And watched some of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame 2020 thing that was on HBO Saturday night. Finally got a little bit of that. Watched light last night. And they got to the obituary section. And, I mean, half of the deaths, of the stupefying number of deaths, I wasn't even aware of. I like to think I stay abreast of normal things in the world as well and just the the depth of talent and heroics in in terms of musicianship lost over the past year has been brutal and so to think of all the folks we've lost in racing and now yet another and the way this year's been going jim won't be the last just yet again i hope that magical thing that involves suspending reality that once the clock rolls over to January 1st at uh, 12.01 a.m., magically, all of the things that have just been a shit fest about this year, including losing drivers, team owners, family members, loved ones, you name it. <sighs> Sorry, y'all, a little bit uh, exasperated here. Um, let's get going with your questions and I'll see how far I can go uh, before I have to hit the pause button and likely finish up Saturday morning. So, sorry, y'all. Really, truly wanted to get this done and out Friday night uh, today. But, uh, yeah, so suckitude and failure yet again on my behalf 
Uh, should mention, and again, I know this is my IndyCar show. Uh, it has been so much fun getting to dive into IMSA over the last couple of weeks since the uh, St. Petersburg season finale. That's been pretty amazing. So while I don't have a ton of like, whoa, serious caliber IndyCar stuff to offer you, I can't wait to finish up writing some of the stuff that I've learned in sports cars. So again, I know this is the wrong show for that, but uh, yeah, sorry. Just uh, just kind of sort of reading it off as it falls into my really disturbed little brain. Our pal Kyle H.B. Donnelly says, As the newly appointed Emperor of Auto Racing Motors, uh, what powertrain out of any possible combination would hashtag you personally choose to outfit uh, the either the current IndyCar chassis or whatever the new one is? Wow, I'm the E-A-R-M. I'm the ERM, Emperor of Auto Racing Motors. Thanks, Kyle. Uh, does that come with, like, I don't know, a salary or something? Do I get, like, a, a crown or a cape or a staff? Like, what do I get? This, I mean, if it's an emperor, I mean, damn. Uh, well, so, what do you want me to do here, Kyle? Should I answer this as the responsible former race engineer guy who knows the best way to answer this, which is, with a motor that is very compact yet powerful? Or do I just kind of go fantasy? Why do I go fantasy? Um, my brain is somewhat confident in saying, but I'm looking forward to someone correcting me if I'm totally wrong. I don't know if I ever, 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 ever recall a V12 powered IndyCar. Um... Has there been a situation where uh, two six-cylinder motors were used somehow? Maybe, I don't know. Um, but an actual proper V12, a block cast with 12 cylinders in it. Um, I don't know if I ever recall that. And a V12 sure does sound like the best thing ever, ever, ever. So that would be my first choice. Uh, I would also say, because again, I think this is just not a thing in IndyCar ever, and maybe F1 too, uh, a, a triple rotor Mazda, if not a quad rotor. I like the sound of the triple rotors better than the, the more famous uh, four rotors, but one of those two. So as I've said for 10, 15, 20 years, if and when I win the lottery, Kyle, I am starting the all V12 and triple rotor racing series where you have to pick between those two types of motors. And I don't care who makes them. It could be a Jaguar. It could be an Aston Martin. It could be a Ferrari. It could be a Mazda. It could be a whomever. But it would be the best sounding racing series ever in the history of the planet ever. So I might throw in, I might expand that to... Uh, inline five-cylinder turbo and but i would specify it has to be an audi right because we're going back to the group b rally days imsa gto trans am right those three seriously we're done uh life as we know it uh is fixed every single problem uh pandemics cancer hunger everything uh climate uh pollution all problems are solved once that racing series starts. And so I think, despite not having the money, 
as the new emperor of auto racing motors, as you have appointed me, Kyle, I think I can do that. So, uh, let's go to Christopher Davis. Hey, MP, I hope you and Miss Prude are doing well. We are. Uh, I'm puzzled by the poor performance of Ed Carpenter and Connor Daly in the number 20 car this year. It got me thinking, do uh, chassis have a life expectancy and could that be the cause of the poor results? I uh, had a question about this somewhat recently, Christopher, not about the team in question, but uh, carbon tubs and do they get old and is that a problem or, or whatever? Uh, yeah, I mean, age is something to think about for sure. But in this situation, I would say no. Uh, they just were not super sharp this year, period. Um, towards the end of the year, things definitely started to improve. We saw that. So uh, I might put this more in the direction of a Andretti Autosport type scenario. Nowhere for a lot of the year. We're really upset and frustrated that that's where they were for a lot of the year put in a ton of work and overtime and i'm sure spent money they didn't want to and found their way towards the end of the year so between renus's pole renus just rocking and rolling and uh, i would say looking uh particularly strong to close the series you know that all these things kind of sort of line up so um that's the general uh, answer for you there, my man. And I, I am trying to do the shotgun thing as best I can uh, tonight. So let's go to our pal, Tony Chef 20. Trying to think, was there a point in time where I had a question? Oh, you're the second question of the day. Uh, let's see. You're back again. Noting, thankfully, that you're sending in this question again, although I will not be cross about it. Well, come on, Tony. If you're going to send it in again you got to berate me that's that's the social contract here he says i'm a social studies teacher and pe teacher wow that's a rather varied couple of things there and we'll be doing a project soon about sports history i was wondering what you would consider the most profound piece of history in indycar that isn't the split wow that's a i mean the the split as you mentioned is certainly profound but i don't think of it really in terms of normal history that that's a sad tale um so yeah okay most profound wow uh, boy I, I feel like i'm going to fail you here um and there's so many things we could point to and say well that had some sort of effect or that had some sort of pop culture thing um I would say the most profound would be its contributions to the automotive industry. The only negative would be it's been forever since that was really a thing and felt right from this to that, to the other, you, some of the well-known things, whether it's the rear view mirror. And again, there's a, there are some things in here that you can say for sure uh, were developed uh, in IndyCar, particularly at the Indianapolis 500, um, some of the big cultural impacts that it had, I mean, it was all the rage post-war in the 60s in particular. This is the decade before I was born, but everything I know, everything I've read, all the people that I've spoken to who were there, all the magazines that I've seen, and I don't mean the racing magazines, but the the just the regular you know, the, the time magazines and people magazines of the day. It was really clear that the Indianapolis 500 
was so high in the American lexicon in terms of importance and value and, and spectacle and awe. I would have to say, and I wish I could answer this with something that I felt more proud of, but it's been a while since the Indy 500 and Indy car did more than simply entertain. Now that's not a bad thing. It's just not profound. So this is where I'm struggling a little bit. If we want to talk about barriers, of course, we can point to Janet Guthrie, William Theodore Ribs. Um, you know, we can point to a select item here or there that really stand out. Uh, innovation was a huge thing. It just hasn't been. Uh, aerodynamics is something that has really been the primary point of education for a long time. Uh, tire education is something that really took off at Indy in the 60s in particular, in the 70s as well. Um, I don't know how much of that really feeds back. So uh, I think this might be more of a personal choice, Tony, compared to the big everyone acknowledges this thing is the most profound piece. Again, we can point to so many little... In the bigger scope would be little things. The rear engine revolution, great. That rear engine Cooper, it changed things at Indy. Great, that's big for Indy, but outside, not so much. So I think that's just where your... I think that's where the call might need to be made. If there's one maybe area that comes to mind that could be a little bit of something... It's more general in the sporting area. It'd be making of some American legends and heroes, not all of them from America, but if we're thinking about an event, that being the 500, and all the names that come to mind first, probably, right? Andretti's and Unser's, uh, Amir's and a Ray Hall, and uh, this, and we can go way back and name a lot who were just became absolute legends, household names, possibly, in modern times, obviously, we'd say Danica. I know she isn't a 500 winner, but the 500 made her in terms of fame. And, the, you know, Elio for sure, Dancing with the Stars and a few others. Maybe that's it. I know that's a little bit soft because you can point to any other sport and say, oh, well, doesn't pick whatever it is. Have five or ten, you know, quote, huge stars, if not more, today who will be who are already known coast to coast, and yes, <laughs> so in that regard, IndyCar is not unique. But I guess we can say IndyCar has certainly created uh, a lot of heroes and legends, just not at the rate or the clip that we once did. So it's an awesome, it's like really an awesome question, Tony. I do feel bad that I can't think of anything that really nails uh, an answer, though. So... This is one where I would love to hear more of what you end up with and whether you send it in uh, for the show or just send me a little DM. Like Seriously, uh, this is the kind of stuff that uh, I always love to hear back on. Uh, let's see, Nick Dovniak. Uh, both Marco and Graham, that being Marco Andretti and Graham Rahal, are seen as not quite living up to their father's legacies. Given the difference in generation, is this really fair? 
their famous fathers uh, raced in a time with custom chassis, tire wars, more funding, shallower fields, and less professional driver prep. How do you think either Michael or Bobby would have done dropped into the current paddock while in their prime? Uh, well, I think they would do well. I'm not convinced they would light the world on fire as we would expect. I would disagree with that, Nick. I would say that if we took late 80s, early 90s, mid-90s Michael Andretti and dropped him into today's paddock, uh, uh, Houston, we got problems. I realize that Michael is oft maligned uh, for only winning one championship and for F1 not going his way and sometimes being petulant or whatever. I don't care about any of that crap. I was there for a lot of it, right, for, I would say, the bulk of his IndyCar career. Um, Similar-ish for uh, our pal Mr. Ray Hall. Uh, Bobby was super talented, super, super talented. Uh, I'd say there was a little bit of a distinction with Bobby where I think he would be uh, just, you know, uh, super, super effective today as well. And that is rarely was he just the driver. He was usually plugged in on a variety of fronts, not just the technical side and all that, but uh, the business, the management, the just... Bobby Bobby always was a supreme operator within the teams that he drove for and really held a lot of responsibility that went beyond driving. Michael, for the most part, just got to be a pure driver. And I think that's why Michael might have been more lethal uh, when those two were competing against one another. Granted, Bobby, Indy 500 winner, three championships, all these things. So, I, we know for sure in terms of what the two of them earned, Bobby is miles ahead. If we look at Michael in general, and Robin Miller will tell you this, and a lot of people tell you this, he was the man. He was the Scott Dixon minus the six championships of his era. Or the, well, really, I mean, that that's the most direct comparison we can make. This guy was brutal. And so, yeah, I can only imagine him dropped into today's scenario. And, yeah, uh, some of the drivers were accustomed to seeing finish in the top five would all of a sudden, or even on the podium, would probably be really upset because they would not be on that podium, podium nearly as often. So there's that. Uh, Marco, yeah, and we've spoken about Marco ad nauseum here. Um, a lot of mistakes made when he was very young, uh, coming into the sport, even coming into IndyCar and such. Just the kid's got a big heart and is, while he does not offer a lot of public emotions, got to realize that he's not, you know, the rather silent, hard-edged and ready like his father. And... Just saying the way you rear a race car driver, there's no one way. You can either be the out of the way and let them feel things out on their own, but if their personality style is one where they really need a lot of involvement, interaction, and just, you know, really someone being their their foundation at all times, kid's going to fail. 
if the kid just wants to be left alone or just wants to figure it out on their own and you've got dad barking and yelling in their ear and you know going the opposite direction you're gonna you're gonna create some issues uh there's a lot of ways to mismanage things and i would just say from the things i've heard uh, there are a lot of things done early in marco's career that were very disruptive and part of me wonders if we continue to see the uh, remnants of that year after year after year graham i think that guy just put in one of the best seasons of his life i really do and no wins what he finished sixth in the championship so you might go uh, hold on huh uh that guy drove his balls off and we obviously know that Takuma Sato won the Indianapolis 500, which was and is amazing. How many times did the team look like they were truly out there to kick ass, take names, and everyone else was instantly playing for, uh, you know, second? Not that often. Obviously, Takuma did, Takuma did super well at uh, the opening gateway round and was pretty darn good for a good portion of the second, but... Um, even so, Graham podiums, they're thereabouts. They just didn't have that extra gear to really be a threat everywhere they went. Um, the best we've ever seen from Graham is when he had Eddie Jones as his race engineer. He and Alan McDonald, after two years, I think have found a pretty darn good place. Um, do I wish that Eddie Jones had remained in place just because I think that they were on the cusp of a big breakthrough? Yes. Uh, will the addition of Matt Greasley now, who's going to engineer Takuma's car, I think, granted, Eddie Jones is freaking first ballot Hall of Famer in the IndyCar Race Car Engineering Hall of Fame. Um, Matt's super sharp, though. And so losing Eddie, it's it's a loss. He's retired, that's beautiful, and he deserves it. But in terms of knowledge and wisdom and experience and just all that, that's a huge loss. Thankfully, coming over from Carlin, Matt, is that guy is wicked good. So I love what they've done here, and I also think some fresh blood. I think that might be an overall positive add to the entire team, so... Of the, I think in the last show or the one before, someone had asked, you know, what teams am I looking forward to? Well, which ones do I think are going to have a, the bigger leap forward in 2021? The signing of Matt with the Ray Hall team, uh, that that gives me real newfound optimism that they might be able to uh, finally turn some of those seconds, thirds, and fourths into wins. Uh, so, yeah, love what's happening there. Um, but back to your final or back to your, your question here, uh, Nick, uh, Graham's also a very, Graham's got a definite boisterous personality. He's got a bit of an ego. Every driver needs one, right? Uh, he's his own man. He's someone who you deal with him the wrong way. You're not going to get, he, you're not going to get the best out of him. I mean, that's kind of human, right? If, if your boss chews you out, disrespects you, whatever it is, eh, you're probably not going to be putting out the best work in whatever it is that you do. Realize that a race engineer isn't Graham's boss, but they're the boss of his potential. 
<laughs> if you and that guy or woman don't get along, they certainly have the ability to uh, tank your season. And I wouldn't say they do that intentionally, but two people working in a conducive manner and finding positive ground and making positive gains, that's where wins and championships come from. When you don't have that, well, you've got middle of the pack. And Graham had a few too many of those years where there's a real disconnect on the engineering side. Uh, not saying that he and Alan McDonald have any disconnect, just this, they've been finding more and more from each other. And so again, I just like where things are going, but you know, this is maybe a bit different. And I'll come back to Dixon because it is a perfect example. He is on his, what, third race engineer across all of his championships and three very different people with very different personalities, uh, vastly different backgrounds um, between Eric Bretzman, Chris Simmons, and Michael Cannon. I mean, they, they, all, they all have amazing capabilities and skills and yada, 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 but these are not similar personalities in any way. And yet Dixon, because this is one of his character traits, He's among the most warm and loving and caring and giving people in any racing paddock. He also has the ability to turn that off, unplug that, whatever you, however you want to phrase it, once it is time to go motor racing. So, I mean, after the session, before the set, whatever it is, when he's not locked into driving mode, you know, at the track, wherever... You get the the normal Dixie, who's all the flowery things I just mentioned. But there's just this switch that always gets flipped, no matter if there's bad stuff going on and, you know, struggles with family or the meteor fell through the roof and blew up the house, whatever. This is a guy who has the ability to shut off the world and perform at the highest peak with a whole different range of people sitting across from him in the engineering room. Um, not every driver can do that. And that's why not every driver is a champion. So it's a trait that the two drivers you've mentioned, some of them are getting better at. Marco's been through, I don't know how many engineers. I don't know. I, I, I would. It'd be interesting to document all the race engineers that he's had it's a big number it might be the biggest number in indycar possibly ever uh graham not so much that way he's not a big change guy but again it's the ability to turn everything off be hyper focused not too emotional not too co just laser focus um the years where the year or years where marco's been able to do that great results the year, years, Graham's been able to do that. Um, same thing. It just hasn't been a guaranteed thing every year. Uh, Robbie Berggren. Hey, Robbie. Uh, and I should say this to all of you. I just, Robbie came to mind. Uh, thank you, man, for being such a, a frequent participant in the show here. It seems like I always have a question from you, and I always it's always good stuff. It's always additive. So, and again, that's not specific to Robbie just uh you stuck out uh Marshall is it time to give up on Colin Brown ever getting a shot in IndyCar the potential of him racing for Ray Hall seems to be completely gone 
I think so, brother. I think so. Uh, and it's not because he is incapable. It's just the momentum that was there has seemingly dried up. Uh, CrowdStrike looked like they were going to get behind him. He obviously is co-driven with CoStrike. CoStrike. CrowdStrike co-owner, co-founder? I think it was co-founder. I believe he's now the sole owner. Um, sorry, I'm totally forgetting his name. George Kurtz. Uh, it sounded like George was willing to do something there. I heard about a shot at uh, what would have been, uh, what, Aero SPM? I think when it was called that, or, or Schmidt-Peterson, I forget year by year all the various names, but pre-McLaren, uh, I recall hearing that there was an option or possibility of something at the team owned by Sam Schmidt and Rick Peterson. Uh, also, the Ray Hall thing, there seemed to be some interest, but um, keep in mind, interest usually is another word for if someone's writing the check, Boy, we can't wait to do this. Uh, let's see. It's your boy, 89, from Reddit. Well, thanks. I didn't know you are my boy, but now I do. Hey, Marshall, I am going to college for motorsports engineering. Awesome. That is awesome. I live in Indianapolis. You mentioned Indiana. That's great. Thank you. Uh, I was wondering if it was uh, Indianapolis, Kansas, but now we know Indiana. Kidding aside, I live in Indianapolis. Indiana, home of the beautiful Indy 500. I want to become an IndyCar engineer or in one of the connecting series. Any advice for internships, connections, or experience I should look for? Well, yes. And if only we had hours and hours and hours. Uh, Probably the same thing I've mentioned on many other episodes when similar things have been asked. Hey, I want to get into racing. I want to be a mechanic, an engineer, a truck driver, or this or that. How do I do it? Where where, when, and whatnot. Uh, are you, is it IUPUI, maybe, the uh, motorsports program they have? Uh, that would be awesome. Um, absolute mandatory on your part to f- take a look at Putnam Park's, you know, SCCA, uh, NASA club racing type calendar, and IRP, maybe, road course type Roval, provided they still do that there. I apologize if they don't. Um, and you have, you know, you go drive four hours east to mid-Ohio. You can go north to here. You can go uh, west to there. It's a lot of tracks in and around you. Hopefully, the ones that are closer, you need to start getting out to club racing events and getting to meet people. And there's going to be someone running a Formula Ford or Formula F. Uh, might be powered by Honda. It might be an old, actual Ford-powered one. You're going to see people running Formula Atlantics, Formula Ford 2000s. You might see Formula Enterprises. You might see a bunch of things. You're going to go out and see people with open-wheel vehicles. And... Not like the GTs and the sports cars and the touring cars and all those things aren't cool, but if Indy car, Indy 500 and all that is your thing, uh, you absolutely need to get out to your local racetracks and start making relationships. So uh, on the club racing, amateur racing level, uh, SCCA, A number one, period. NASA, super good as well. I'd say a pretty clear number two, though. 
Uh, but either SCCA or NASA, go make friends. And if you're shy, well, uh, my friend, this might not be the sport for you. Uh, go out and make some friends. Tell them, hi, I don't know a damn thing about anything, but I know that I want to be an engineer in the Indy 500, and I am going to college for it, and I want to get some real-world practical work study. So can I help you? Can I have a some paper towels and some Windex or whatever to wipe down the car? Can I inflate the tires? Can I whatever? That's what you need to do. And I know that this is kind of the same thing I tell everybody that asks, but this is the thing. Like, If you just wait for what you're going to learn in your classes, it's going to come at a trickling pace. Getting out and doubling, tripling, quadrupling the pace of what you learn by being hands-on. And so the being at the track part is super cool. But where you get the real education is in the person or people that you meet and say, hi, can I volunteer? I just want to learn. Uh, I just want to be a sponge. You're, it's the going to their house Monday night to help them replace the brake pads and possibly sand the discs a little bit if they're glazed and bleed the brakes. Then, hey, while you're at it, let's also bleed the clutch. Um, Tuesday night, you'll be there helping to do a nut and bolt on the car. Check all the nuts and bolts, torque everything that can be torqued and inspect. Look for chafing, look for cracks, look for leaks, blah, 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 blah. Then it's going to be Wednesday night, the body work and polishing and looking and making sure that everything is good and the wings are this and that. And Thursday night, it'll be maybe cleaning all the wheels uh, and it might be whatever else, uh, firing the thing up, making sure, getting it warmed up, make sure everything's working properly, inspecting everything, so on and so forth. And then rolling it into the trailer and helping to load the toolboxes and the spares and the jacks and the jack stands and blah, blah, blah. That's where you get the value. Uh, And so when you and your new friends drive to the track Friday or Saturday, whatever it might be, great. The at track part, that's awesome. The stuff you're going to learn in their garage, in their shop, in the out in the backyard, wherever the heck this stuff is going on. That's where you're going to get the real knowledge that helps. And then when you're at the track, that's super cool. But uh, that that's just the end result of the work you put in and the stuff that you learned. So I'm going to tell everybody this thing. Um, just if you want to be involved in racing, and it's not just being an idiot like me these days, going typity-type on keyboards or snappity-snap with uh, cameras, I mean, being at the track's amazing. Love all that, but uh, you got to get stuck in, make relationships, and get your hands dirty. Uh, that's where you get smart, and that's where you become valuable. So, uh, let's see. Jordan Darwin, MP, who is the best Indy car driver in the series without an Indy 500 win and the best without a championship? Hashtag me personally. Joseph Newgarden comes to mind as far as Indy 500. Uh, and then Rossi, or maybe Graham Rahal for the series title. Funnily enough, had this exact conversation without knowing that you had sent this in Jordan with a friend of mine who manages a couple drivers today. And we said the same thing, except for it was phrased in, 
boy, if we're talking about missed marketing opportunities, uh, you got the two-time IndyCar champ who lives and breathes to become an Indy 500 winner. American, by the way, drives for one of the two biggest, uh, one of the three biggest teams. His rival in age and accomplishment drives for another one of the big three teams. He's won the Indy 500 and wants nothing more than a championship. Both feel unfulfilled uh, with the void in achievement. Boy, is that not, would that not be an amazing theme to uh, launch to help promote the two of them? Because as our discussion went, it sure seems like Joseph, despite being a two-time champion, maybe is not as significantly promoted as his rival, Mr. Rossi. Um, yeah, so spot on, 100%. You nailed it. That I same thing I would offer here. Just say that, boy, doesn't that seem like a pretty compelling thing to market and promote? Uh, anytime you have a significant sport with two significant athletes in a domestic championship and they're from the country where that domestic championship is held, like, boy, uh, you can't make a fake rivalry, but you sure can make this void the two of them feel into a real thing and into a race of who's going to get there first. So there you go. Uh, Al Wolstein, MP, hope you and Mrs. Pruitt are doing well. Thank you. Why is it that Sebastian Bourdais uh, was never able to get a top-tier ride in IndyCar? I know that he did have one with Newman Haas and Champ Car. Well, funny you should ask, Al. Uh, that Sebastian Bourdais guy won those four straight champ car titles that you mentioned, and then he went to Formula uh, And at the time he went to Formula uh, we had this little thing called the unsplit. Uh, we had this little thing of champ car and IndyCar coming together. In reality, it was champ car going bankrupt and folding, but we had this thing called the merger where they came together and almost like passing out brains, uh, passing out lives, passing out souls in heaven. Uh, a lot of seats were kind of sort of passed out to folks who were here as these two series came together Had a handful of team owners come over from champ car. IndyCar really went overboard to make sure that the, uh, IRL chassis from the, uh, what was renamed as the IndyCar series back then, but I still think of it as IRL and champ car. Uh, they made sure that chassis were available for those champ car teams coming over. And so there was a bit of shuffling going on. And for those who were in this new unified combined IndyCar, there were seats available and seats taken. Seb was not here. His F1 ride went, uh, what was that? 2009, I think. Yeah. Uh, halfway latter stages of 2009. And by that point, there wasn't a whole lot of uh, anything that was truly available. So with him coming back, not as if, well, granted, there was also, I would say, a little bit of a, well, hey, I thought you were super special, but things just went very, very badly in F1. So, huh, is it you? Is there a little bit of shine lost from your... Uh, 
career and reputation and whatever else. There's definitely some of that. That's human nature. Uh, was it warranted? No, but regardless, um, he came back and just simply didn't have top line drives available to him. Al, uh, that's that. And so what did he do? He came back on a part-time deal with Dale coin of all people, um, doing road and street courses. Uh, who is it? Alex Lloyd love Alex Lloyd. I should ring him. I haven't spoken to him in forever. Um, Alex did, I believe the ovals and what, uh, things began to move a little bit from there. Then it was dragon racing and you know, um, there wasn't a lot of true open doors and I'll just say it. I've said it many times, but it is what it is. Signing with Dale Coyne was good uh, in the latter stage, you know, the last however many years, but just as Dale did with Justin Wilson, um, Dale likes ownership, man. He likes holding on to the people that he has signed if he knows that they are good and if better opportunities come up, well, cool, but that's not me. Sorry, we got a contract and this is where you're going to be driving. So, Hard to ignore those things. Uh, Timing has certainly been off, uh, without a doubt. So was there a grand interest in Sebastian Bourdais becoming Scott Dixon's teammate uh, in 2018? Absolutely. Had Dale Coyne allowed Sebastian to do that? Um, I believe it was an option uh, for him, right? Not like, oh, you signed a multi-year ironclad deal, but it was a thanks. You just got it. You're we're here, but hey, uh, I have an option on you for next year, and I'm not gonna and I'm gonna, not gonna let you go. Um, had that not been the case, Ed Jones would not have been Scott Dixon's teammate. Uh, for that one year, it would have been Sebastian Bourdais. And I would also, I think, safely assume that Felix Rosenquist would have never been Scott Dixon's teammate, nor would Alex Pelot today. Uh, because I, having driven for the team uh, in the Ford GT sports car program, they absolutely knew who Sebastian Bourdais was, loved every bit of him. He was a total pain in the ass, but a pain in the ass striving for excellence, not just uh, giving people a hard time. Um, They absolutely wanted him, and the guy who held the option on him would not let him go. So can't blame Dale. I mean, he had the option. It's his to take up. He's not a bad guy. I just know that, uh, boy, we wouldn't be covering this topic right now, Al, uh, had that been different. Um, Mike Hogg. Hey, Marshall, in the spec car days, do you ever envision... Envision the day when the engine supply shortage and huge cost of chassis ever lessens to the point that we get smaller teams back. Old school like Peyton Coyne, Project India's examples. Uh, I was always a fan of minnow teams who bought up older equipment and gave it a go. Uh, no, Mike, I really don't. Would just mention here, because it's worth mentioning, I don't recall the least cost for a Ilmore C spec or D spec motor that would have gone into a project IndyCar or a whomever might've been building the, the Ford Cosworth X B X, whatever that would have gone into a paint and coin entry 
Uh, I guarantee you it's less than the million bucks today, probably, but you know, cars, new cars were three, 400 grand, uh, fully kitted out. were certainly, you know, more than that. Um, motors weren't like just a dime a dozen. So it's not like things were super cheap back then, cheaper than they are now. No question. But it's not like things were like, oh, psh, why, why get two when you can get five? It, they weren't that inexpensive. There was just more money. So the the real answer to all this, it's not so much engine supply shortage, big modern chassis expense. These things are too expensive. We all know that. But there was just a ton more money in the series back then, even for smaller teams. Uh, so they could be minnows. And even if they were buying older equipment, they had money to do that. There just aren't many of those left, Mike. So without a radical change to practices and formulas, I don't foresee that coming back, my friend. Um, all right. I've got three more questions. I can smell my dinner slightly burning in the oven, so let me get through these, and then I'm going to stop, and then we have a ton of overtime questions that uh, I'm going to try and get to tomorrow, probably while watching the 12 hours of Sebring. Um, but uh, I don't want to ignore y'all for sending, uh, taking the time to send stuff in. You know how much I do appreciate that. So let's see. We're going to close quickly here. Jordan Darwin again. MP, obviously, IndyCar drivers are super brave. Um, uh, and even with top flight prep and safety devices, they risk their life every time they're on track. That said, during a race or right before a session, teams are sometimes having to thrash to get their car on track or keep them on the lead lap, etc. It says, while bailing wire and duct tape are not staples of IndyCar, uh, can you regale us with stories you have of some questionable repairs on IndyCars to get them back on track? Uh maybe the most obvious ones that i've seen some of these through watching races on television maybe a lesser degree but a little bit in person probably more along the line jordan of uh bent suspension uh, driver quote tapping the wall hitting the wall bending things a little bit and whether it is a hammer or jumping on thing, you know, just someone putting their weight on it, pressing on it heavily, exerting force to try and unbend things, knowing that, yeah, the alignment's not going to be perfect, but we're going to try and get you back in the race. I mean, I, I do recall some of that. Just talking IndyCar modern era, though, I mean, since we've been carbon fiber-ish type stuff for the last what since 91 you know you hit stuff uh not so much bendy more breaky shattery uh before that you know hitting things with uh aluminum tube being used as the main support structure within say front wings and someone hitting the wall and bending a wing upward because it's metal and it would bend you know the the stomping on that wing at a pit stop to try and get it somewhat flat uh, or to pull it away from a tire, or, you know, uh, those are more the things that come to mind. It's more metal in angles that it wasn't when it went out to start the race. Beyond that, like the, you know, the, there's some 
you know, th- there are some minor other things of, is there a hole in the radiator and what do you do there, uh, during the race? You know, do you pray cracking open the, the water system at 250 degrees and all the pressure and stuff like as you don't so much see that anymore, but you know, th- there's, there definitely been some prayers that you know of going on like, Oh boy. Uh, I, th- I think we burned this and it's going to fail or otherwise, you know, the, Hey, there might've been a small fire and did it get into the wiring, for example, and how much, and can we run without it? What have we sacrificed uh, by going? It's more those things, not so much the risking one's life significantly. Uh, I do recall one or two times, and I'm sorry that I don't have specific events, but where the, yeah, don't, don't, don't jump on that and pound on that to make it flat. Uh, cause it, it's, it, that's bent enough to look like it's going to fail and the team kind of doing it. And this would have been decades ago. Uh, the team sending the driver back out and it failing like, you know, uh, a lot of practices or, or policies have been put in place and regulation and oversight that weren't there before to make sure that we really don't have this so much. Um, Sean Lee says you're ugly and your mother dresses you funny. Well, that's also, uh, it's not a question. It's more of a fact. Uh, here's my resubmission. Absolute grade A on the uh, the needling me for the resubmission. So Roger Penske comes to you and says, Marshall, I'm putting you on the payroll, full benefits, health and dental, etc. Side question. As a self-employed healthcare provider, I know how insurance companies can be. Uh, you and the missus doing okay from a coverage perspective? Uh, we are. Uh, we're, we're okay. Um, yeah. Uh, it's fun, though, to see bills show up out of nowhere and be like, Oh really? Um, so, uh, back to your question. Uh, and he wants you to be uh, assistant night manager in charge of driver talent. Ooh, a night manager. First of all, great. And the assistant too. That's awesome. So like, I'm not really fully responsible. Uh, your task with fielding the field of 33 full-time drivers, no financial tie-ins, no sponsor BS. You can pick from everyone or anyone who's been in a car in the last five years. Okay. Age 19 to 45. All right, who's on that list? All right, I don't know if I'm going to get to 33 because no joke, my dinner is significantly starting to, uh, I think, become uh, more cinder than food, cinder block. Uh, Okay, I can't do this off the top of my head, unfortunately, because at this hour, it's 10.28 p.m. Um, I'm going to throw some names at you for sure. Uh, Simona D. Silvestro, is that the last five years? I don't know, but we're just going to pretend that it is. Um, who else are we going to go to in this? Uh, James Davison, for sure. I love that guy. He's just, you know, all balls and bravado and, and talent and ego and uh, all that stuff. And you always need someone like that. Uh, Juan Montoya, for sure. Uh, who else? Uh, Jay Howard, I feel like he got a shitty end. To things, and I, I know he's not planning to come back to my knowledge, but I'd love to see him do that. Uh, I'm not going to get your 33. I'm just going to throw in ones who amuse me. Mikhail Lotion for sure. Holy crap, right? That's a wild card we need. That guy could win the Indy 500. He really could. Uh, and hit the wall really, really hard and not win the Indy 500, but he's got that potential. Uh, Gabby Chavez, I feel like Gabby, again, I don't know if raw deal is the way to put it, but. That guy, there's just something there. Congrats, by the way. New IMSA Michelin Pilot Challenge Series 
TCR champion with Brian Hurd Autosport. Uh, let's see. Who else do I want to see back? Tristan Vautier. That guy, too. Balls. Just big French balls. Uh, where else are we going here? Um, I enjoyed having Fernando Alonso there, and obviously he did super well uh, on his debut in 2017. Um, I don't know if I was ever really moved by him being there, though. So does that mean anything? Probably not. Was he ever moved by me being there? Absolutely not. So I'm glad he doesn't have a podcast answering this kind of question about which 33 journalists because he'd savage me, and it'd be warranted. Um, Who else comes to mind here? My pal Steph Wilson. I want him to get another shot. Uh, I, I I was so close to being ready to ball my eyes out had he been able to win uh, on his last outing. It, can't, it seems like he came close. Matthew Brabham, putting him in that category too. That kid, uh, lost talent, right? I mean, he has a career, but I'm talking IndyCar. Uh, I, I miss that kid for sure. Uh, where else are we going to go? Uh, Jack Hawksworth, for sure. Um, drop him into one of the big three right now, and I think he is surprising the living crap out of a lot of people. Um, he was good back when he was an IndyCar. He was never with the right team at the right time. But today, for real, um, that guy sh- that guy would be just knocking people out with the quality right there. Uh, what else? You said five years. I always forget whether that means 2016 or 2015 when I do my subtraction. So I'm just going to go back to 2015 and uh, see if any other names pop out. Uh, and then I got to get rolling here with the final question and then go get my dinner. Uh, who else? Yeah, there's a couple that make me sad here. Obviously, the big man, uh, Brian Clausen, for sure. Uh, Simona, 2015, was her last. So, yeah, right there. Uh, who else am I missing? Stefano Coletti, for sure. Kidding. Humor. Um, I think that's going to do it. Sorry that I didn't get you all 33. You know me, so you know disappointment's kind of part and parcel of what I do. Uh, The final question above the cut line for the questions assembled by Tim Falkowitz comes from our pal, genuine pal. Good guy, makes his own T-shirts, right? Always has some cool T-shirts at the races. And also, as I come to learn, an excellent photographer, Jeff Barak, says, if you were to form a team of people from IndyCar uh, to race lawnmowers, who would be in your team and why? <sighs> that is a bizarre question, Jeff. Uh, I love that you chose lawnmowers. I don't fully grasp the, the significance in how it might connect to IndyCar, but I'm willing to go with it. Uh, who would I choose? Well, if is this oval racing or like kind of grass road course racing or real road course? I don't know. So if it's well, I guess either way. Part of me thinks lightweight. So is that a Zach Veach, uh, Takuma Sato, assuming that there isn't equal ballast put in to make sure everything's totally level? That's a very IndyCar thing. If it's just ovals, I may be thinking height a little bit and a good lean, right? Since we're not talking vehicles that are super low to the ground and, and, and road hugging and whatnot. I mean, they are low to the ground. That's a stupid thing to say. Their center of gravity is not low to the ground. Uh, I'm thinking some taller-ish drivers. Renus, for example, that kid's, you know, 
that kid's six one, I think six two. Graham Hunter Ray for sure. Uh, who else? Rossi probably. You know, I want ones that can put in that lean because we just we're wanting as much uh, physics on our side since we're trying to race lawnmowers on an oval. So that's where I'm going. Uh, I hope those answers didn't totally suck, Jeff and everyone. Um, can't wait to get back and get to the rest of the overtime stuff. If you don't happen to stay and want to listen, not a problem. That's why I do this primary and then overtime. So as we normally do, and we're going to do, going to say thank you to you for everything you sent in. Thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, and Bell Racing Helmets USA. We will be back if you want to stay over with the final portion of the show, our overtime, tomorrow, Saturday, whatever the hell the date is. And hey, we're back. One final time, our third stab to get this episode complete. We're now officially into overtime. Let's see how many I can get through. I have about a half an hour, y'all, and you have probably two hours worth of questions for overtime. So let me see what I can do. Uh, We're going to start off with our pal Jared Burcham. Last week you referenced IndyCar branching out the new Silicon Valley as an example. Does this mean we can start asking about LED panels every week? Hashtag LED panels for 2021. Jared, I got to tell you the truth here. I've been very disappointed. You and others have not continued to ask about this every week. So, yes, you you parsed my Silicon Valley references correctly. Whatever I was saying about it, that was all nonsense and a diversion. Really, it was just in an effort, in a hope that someone would pick up on the fact that we need to talk about LED panels again. So here we go. Uh, Sam Anadiotis. Hey, Sam. MP, in your professional opinion, what odds do you give for the Grand Prix of Cleveland returning? I'd love to see it return, but hashtag me personally, I give it a low chance, mainly because of oversaturation with Mid-Ohio being so close to Cleveland. Hope you and Miss Pruitt are doing well. Well, Sam, I would rate the odds, or let's go percentage, because I don't know gambling well, so odds bad in brain. Uh, I would give it a 0% chance, because as I have been told for a little while now, uh, Burke Lakefront Airport is about to not be. And, yeah, so I think the place where we used to race, and I loved going there. Um, I What did I hear? Condominiums? Housing? Something? So, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, yeah, I don't think there's a chance at all of that happening. Uh, let's see. Let's go to Brett Ross. MP, you get called back into being an engineer for an IndyCar team. You get to choose any current team. Which team do you choose? Happy Veterans Day to your wife and all the veterans listening. Thank you, Brett. Oh, well, <laughs> let's see. Um, I guess we really have to ask which team do we dislike the most? because if I was that good of a race engineer, I'd probably still be doing it, right? At least at the IndyCar level. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, what are, we, what are we talking? Coin, maybe, for fun? Uh, I could hide there a little bit uh, before being exposed as old and bad and needing to go somewhere else. I wouldn't want to do it with a good team because, and I'm not saying coin's bad, but I mean like a real championship contending team because I'd destroy their chances. Uh, I don't think any of us look at Dale Coin Racing and say, oh, yeah, championships going through them. So that's why they came to mind. Uh, so, yeah, let's go with Coin. Um, plus, Dale is such an enigmatic personality that it's either going to be awesome or I'm going to last less than one day, one of the two. 
Darren Dubois, MP, is the separation of the IndyCar and IMSA races at Detroit next year. Uh, spinning them out into mo- separate weekends, one week apart. Is that a one-year thing or a permanent situation? I'm surprised they're able to block off Belle Isle for two weekends. I'm told it's a one-off. So, yeah. Uh, I also would say, I think with IMSA going the weekend before, I think that is going to be very lightly attended. And I would say that, there would be no circumstances where uh, the series or their sponsors would want to do that again. So, yeah. Uh, One-off is all I've heard. Uh, Let's see. Sean Lee, why does the traction compound laid by NASCAR at oval track seem to benefit stock cars, but did diddly squat for open open wheel cars at Texas? Well, keep in mind that the traction compound pj1 is it jp1 whatever it is um that was all kind of scrubbed off ground down however you want to put it so there was no actual traction compound uh sitting there to be used by the indy cars it's not something the indy cars use so yeah actually when they got there uh it had all been worn down uh worn away whatever you want to call it uh scraped off and the number that we heard was there was somewhere between a 10 and 15% reduction in grip compared to the low line where the cars were running and making that Firestone rubber dig into the circuit. So there you go. Uh, Cody, DW12, uh, which ovals are even a possibility to be added to the 22 schedule? I'd love to see Rockingham, North Carolina, uh, and, and racing uh, returning there. Um, but a regional late model series has significantly lower requirements of tracks compared to IndyCar, so I shrug. I, I mean, we can throw out probably a lot of the ones that we have before Cody. You know, the Kansases, some of the one-and-a-half-milers for sure. Um, we would hope Richmond could be a thing again, but the fact that it's not for next year is uh, very telling. I don't have a good feel for this yet, and that's by and large because I'm ignorant. So um, I don't have anything for you yet. I apologize. Uh, from Reddit, Arrow Schmero asks, where's JPM going to end up next year? That is an answer that I do have, but I'm not at liberty to share that. But uh, he does have a good deal in place, and uh, I look forward to that being announced here in the coming days. Uh, Jamie Carr, in the last week in IndyCar, used several sports metaphors, baseball in particular. With that in mind, which sports have the best metaphors for IndyCar and auto racing in general? The worst. Have you ever had to explain one to a driver or owner? And as always, best you and your wife. Well, yes, the explanation part quite often happens when I'm talking to a driver, usually a driver from a country where, say, baseball isn't much of a thing. American football is absolutely not a thing. So, yeah, usually it's the, oh, that's right, uh, you don't have football pitches, uh, or you have football pitches, you don't have the gridiron, or that kind of nonsense. So, as for which has the best metaphors, <sighs> probably baseball. I think, you're, I, I think that's why I default there. I played baseball a ton as a kid, so it's probably where all that started to sink in. Jamie... 
Uh, Rishi Despond. How you doing, Rishi? Might be a little late getting my question in, but last week you said you had planned to talk to the captain about IndyCar and lights and other things. Anything you can share from the conversation? Well, I might have misspo- might have misspoken, Rishi. Uh, I said I planned to talk to Roger. I didn't say when. Uh, have not spoken with him. Um, so nothing to share from a conversation because hasn't happened yet. Uh, did speak with Dan Anderson though, who, uh, runs the road to Indy, uh, and also owns the Indy pro 2000 and USF 2000 series and did a pretty good dive on Indy lights. So hoping to have that story out early ish next week. Uh, okay. Where else, where else are we going here? Todd Murray. AMP four-time 500cc MotoGP champ Eddie Lawson had a reasonably successful open-wheel career in the junior formulas in the mid-90s, culminating with a half-season of IndyCar with Rick Gallus in 96. Can you shed some light on this? Why did he bow out halfway through the season? His results were good, and he wasn't crashing. I really don't know the answer to the latter part, and I should. Did see him in Indy Lights and thought he did very well. Did see him in IndyCar, as you mentioned as well, and thought he acquitted himself just spectacularly. Don't know why that, uh, I'm sure I did at the time, but I've forgotten. So I don't recall why it came to an end. Uh, we'll just throw in for fun. While down at All-American Racers, I don't know, five, six, seven, however many years ago, I think for uh, prior to the Long Beach Grand Prix, Robin Miller and I dropped by to see the Big Eagle and Kathy and um all the boys and say hello and so kathy said hey what do you guys want for lunch i'm going to order from uh our, our favorite mexican place at great she did um got the order uh sat down to eat and in walked eddie lawson <laughs> who'd gone to the same place on his own gotten his burrito and said well uh, hey want to wander over right because it's right there and uh pop in and have lunch with dan so just a, an unexpected guest but yeah pretty awesome between myself, Miller, Eddie freaking Lawson, and the Big Eagle. Uh, how fun is that? Uh, let's see. Daniel Summerskill, what memories do you have of the 1993 IndyCar season, and how was Nigel Mansell received in the series and in the USA in general? Uh, Daniel says, hashtag me personally. was only nine at the time, but remember seeing our Nige's monster crash at Phoenix in the early season, only to come back to win the championship. Uh, he was spectacular, Daniel. Keep in mind, he had just won the 1992 Formula One World Championship driving at that time and what still might be the most technologically advanced Formula One car ever, the Williams FW14B. I know that the following year, the 15 Alan Prost drove to the championship was based off of the the 92 car but really that 92 car just with the active suspension it it just defied <laughs> the universe um he's coming from driving in 92 the fastest most obscene outrageous insane formula 1 car ever and climbed into a 92 Lola Cosworth that had a higher weight smaller tires, less grip, um, and less power. So you want to talk about a guy who is just absolutely primed to go faster than everybody. Uh, I'm not saying that his Newman Haas uh, IndyCar was slow or easy to drive, 
but he was accustomed to going considerably faster, which tends to make climbing into something that's not as fast an easier transition. Now, where things get really impressive, though, Daniel, uh, he'd been to none of the tracks. He didn't know a thing about oval racing. That's the thing to take away here. The fact that Nigel Mansell won an IndyCar championship, not remarkable because of how good he was and the experience that he had, what he was coming off of. The fact that it didn't take him until the second year to do this, that is the thing that you really have to appreciate. Year one, rookie, everywhere he went. I mean, what I know he'd been to Long Beach, a different configuration back in the day, you know, but we'll just say was brand new everywhere he went, absolutely knew nothing about ovals, picked all these things up, and won the championship. Little tiny caveat, back then testing was wide open, and so they did a million days of testing. Today, that's why you really don't see such things. But this was phenomenal. And so in terms of what was felt, remembered, and experienced at the time, uh, you know, most people in IndyCar had a really healthy appreciation of Formula One and the fact that we had the reigning F1 champ in the world's most amazing race car coming over here to drive something that had active nothing. It was an analog car compared to the very digital one that he had just driven. Manual gearbox compared to um, paddle shift and just everything. Uh, so just crazy so there was an appreciation that this guy was coming into something that uh while new and a big learning curve was not beyond his capabilities um his teammate mario in the twilight of his career uh 93 would have been his penultimate season uh 52 53 years old um mario put up as stiff an opposition as he could but you know, definitely a difference in age and era. And there were lots of other really good race car drivers that year. The only thing that he didn't have was a certain Michael Andretti that we just spoke about a little while ago. Would Nigel have been the champion if, say, Michael was in the Sister Newman Haas entry? I don't know about that. So, big respect. He had a reputation of being a pain in the ass. Uh, all I heard about in the early going was that he was pretty nice. And then his repu- the reputation that preceded him, uh, certainly came across the good old Atlantic and yeah, the second year, you know, he and Mario had just fallen out, um, through 93 and by 94, it was kind of sort of open war and there weren't a lot of really happy, positive things to say, Keep in mind that 94 year, 93 year, the Penske's really good. 94, the Penske's were dominant. That 94 Lola was good, but not great. 94 was the year, first year introduction of the Renard IndyCar chassis, which was exceptional. So went from being the big star uh, marauding over here in IndyCar in America, 93, cleaning up and winning all the positive things following year that lola wasn't super sharp penske was way above everybody else then they also threw in the beast at the 500 the renard was certainly a step up so his second season final season eh, wasn't a lot of fun magically he starts looking to f1 opportunities when some very unfortunate things happened at imola 
So uh, mostly positive, Daniel. Um, you know, can't tell you falsehoods here. He had a reputation for being a dick. He wasn't necessarily to begin, uh, but it certainly became dickish. And I don't know if, I don't recall anyone being truly sad or conflicted when he left. Um, I mean, I'm sure he had fans who felt that way, but in terms of within the series and just the vibe, um, felt like he'd really in a short amount of time worn out his welcome. So, but that personality, that well-known, well-established in F1. So uh, let's see, where are we going next? Kevin DeVries. Holy cow, we got a Kevin DeVries question. The show's getting good. I heard you mention in various places about quote, tubbing a car, uh, a chassis. What is it and what does that entail? Based on the context, I presume it's a way to salvage a damaged chassis, but I've been wrong before. Well, Kev, you're taking another L, my friend. Tubbing a chassis is a description for destroying a chassis. It was tubbed, meaning the tub was destroyed. Uh, You know, how big was the crash? Oh, man, we tubbed the thing. All right. So that's just a way of saying uh, the carbon fiber thing that the person sits in. Yeah, that has to go away, and we've got to get a new one because they broke the tub. They tubbed it. Scott Bell says, I know network TV time constraints limit post and pre-race interviews, but surely IndyCar could produce some YouTube or NBC Gold service for more in-depth coverage before and after the races. How about Cooper Tires pays uh, for you and I to run around the paddock, mate? Well, I love the sound of that. Running might be a bit comical. Uh, I'm not up to the my top speed I once was. Again, I, no disagreement. These are all things that we should have. Uh, I gotta believe that as the world becomes less tethered to standard TV, sit, sitting on the couch and partaking in whatever, I just gotta believe that more of this, a uh, more entrenched mindset of hey we need to entertain people with more and things that are readily delivered to them and so yeah i'm with you i love the fact that you think i should do it um but i'm with you more good uh where are we going next we're actually going through these somewhat quickly i like this uh higher lee whatever happened to the quote IndyCar star that was planning a major move. Um, I know you don't like to tell all on the podcast. Just wonder if the uh, the the breaks on that front have been applied. Uh, major move. I hate to admit it higher because it's true. I don't remember what I was talking about. Uh, so if there's more context you can add, please do. Um, yeah, it's an excuse, but I'll throw it out there. Uh, woke up at five this morning after not getting a lot of sleep for pretty much all week. Uh, didn't need to get up at five. Couldn't go back to bed. And so I'm half asleep right now and it's only 2.13 PM, but I've been tracking Petit Lamas and 7 AM. So funnily enough, my brain's more scattered than usual. Uh, let's see. Where are we going? Where are we rocking? Where are we rocking next? Uh, Josh Reinal says, was wondering about parts that are adjustable and can be replaced during a race, such as a hashtag front nose and rear wing. Uh, when a change is made mid-race, are the same changes uh, applied to the replacement parts uh, so they will be ready 
if needed. Uh, also, what about the same on tire pressures? You also say, thanks for being you. Well, thanks, Joel. Thanks for you being you. Yes, this is absolutely something that has to be done. It's done, well, I don't know what the percentage is. We'll just say 99% of the time. But every now and then you find out that, oh, uh, someone did forget that when the engineer said, hey, going to make a change on the grid on the rear wing, we're actually going to go up one hole on the uh, upper flap. Uh, and because we want a little bit of more rear downforce, move the balance rearward, whatever the reasoning might be. Uh, sometimes folks on rare occasion, uh, team forgets to then adjust the sparer wing to have that same downforce <clears throat> level in the newly adjusted slot. And you can apply that same thing to the, uh, the hashtag front nose to the front wings. Um, yeah. So at, on occasion, uh, these things get missed, but you have to assume that if a driver's had something happen where the nose or the rear wing or the whatever is busted and they're having to come into pit lane, uh, even if the matchy matchy setup thing has been missed on the spare, you know, it's not a big surprise that they might not be in a super competitive position when they go back out. So it makes the problems problem worse, but it probably isn't the thing that changes a potential win to a loss. Uh, you'll also see Joel, uh, many teams doing the same with suspension bits, not all, but, uh, the vast majority will, if, uh, will take the front steering arms and make sure that the spares that they have are identical length so that the toe is spot on and so on and so on. Now, when it comes to tires, this is something where, again, if you have a, uh, a quick puncture compared to one where, like, hey, we're feel it looks like it's going down, telemetry saying it's a slow leak. If it's just a bam and the driver pulls straight into the pits, will there be a tire that is sitting at the perfect uh, pressure at that exact second? Hopefully, but maybe not. Uh, usually, when a pit stop is done, teams will get the next set of tires kind of in the pipeline ready and going. And so instead of say waiting the whole stint and within the last two laps, then uh, set the pressure, will there be a slight pressure adjust adjustment usually within a very brief window when the car pits, that's not uncommon. But the point being is instead of the tire, just tires, just being at whatever old pressure uh, the whole time. No, they usually keep them. They're usually on that pretty quickly. So if indeed a quick, replacement is needed they're not having to sit there on pit lane and either inflate or drastically bleed down let's see uh pale blue dot 24 i don't know if i've read a question from you before there dear reddit contributor uh says i read robin miller's q a and he thinks jimmy johnson will ultimately run the indy 500 next year says if ganassi signs a driver to only run the ovals let's say tony canon but johnson decides he'll run the 500 what happens with a canon is he out of luck or will Ganassi run five cars at Indy? Well, there's this cool little thing called a contract. And granted, we've seen an Indy car over the last year or two. Those don't always amount to the paper they're written on. But if someone has agreed to drive the car on the ovals, we can say safely that that driver has found sponsorship, signed a deal, and is bringing it with them. 
And so that involves the driver then having contracts with a sponsor or sponsors. So it's one thing if Chip were to say, we're going to pay someone to do the ovals. I've never heard that being the approach or reality. I've only heard about looking for someone to a quality driver to fill that role, but who brings a budget. So since it's not a hire situation, but indeed a buyer situation, it'd be pretty hard to boot somebody out of that car. Could contractually there be a well, then I guess we're going to have to run a fifth very likely. So, but we're not even there yet. So let's not get too far ahead of ourselves, but I do like the angle you're thinking about here. We're covering all contingencies. Uh, where else are we going? Let me see where we're at for time. Yeah, we're getting pretty close to the end, y'all. Let me let me grab whichever ones I think I can do quickly. Uh, Jamie Carr, with all due respect, the best nickname for Alex Polo is the Barista. Since we already have Jack the Baker Harvey, maybe they can have uh, the Coffee and Cakes Morning Show to offset the Lunch Dinner Show, the French Fry and Hamburger. Now I love that. That is great. Uh, Let's see, Steve Grinstead. You have sent in a question about iRacing that is 250 words. Send that in again, my friend. Um, If you were to cut that down to 50 to 75 words, it'd probably give me a better uh, window of opportunity to include it in the show uh, with time available. Uh, We have, I'm going to close with three questions, starting with Dan Rice. MP, what makes a great street uh, circuit for an IndyCar race? As a former Southern California resident, I'm naturally biased towards Long Beach, uh, just being generally awesome. But St. Pete also puts on a good show. Is it finding the right layout on the city streets, a great setting, uh, thinking like Monaco, or something else that makes uh, these street circuits good? And as a bonus, what U.S. city would you like to build your own circuit in to host the MP200? Look at that. Well, that's an obvious one. It's one that folks have wanted to do forever, but it's never happened. The streets of San Francisco 200 right? The elevation changes. Holy cow. Um, I mean, the, the locale is nice. Eh, you know, the, most street circuits have the cement barriers and tall fences around them. So while there are picturesque things to look at quite often, it's not usually just wide open beauty. So that's a thing. Um, Monaco being an exception. I'd just say the fewer really slow 90-degree turns, the better. There have been some that just suck, Dan, because like, hey, we're going to do a street race, and you go, great. It's a lot of tight turns. It's a lot of second, third gear stuff. And just if you haven't noticed, those aren't the places where a lot of passing takes place. You, You usually see passing in transitions from high speed to low speed. And if you have way too many turns that are just kind of low to medium speed, eh, it's a lot of follow the leader. So that's the thing. Is there a long straight that you can lead into something uh, where cars have to slow down a lot and maybe give one the opportunity to overtake the other? Uh, So, yeah, that, uh, I'd say, is a pretty general formula, my friend. Uh, Nick Dovniak um, asked for the sports car show, but I'll try it here. Uh, how different or complicated is the engineering of an Indy car versus, say, an LMP2 car? Both are spec or mostly spec, spec engines, and limited aero range. Other than damper development, is an Indy car any more complex? Uh, yeah, 
lots more complex. Nick, uh, with LMP2 cars, those are homologated vehicles. So, yeah, um, not a lot that you can really do there at all. In IndyCar, the relative freedom on the suspension side, more the damping side, not the actual make-your-own A-arms that are different than someone else's and, and different geometry and shape and whatever, but just the bits that compress and twist and really govern pitch and heave and roll and and attitude and squat and all that kind of stuff. That's an area where a lot of time goes in there. The aero side, there are enough things that you can put on or take off to, you know, have some fun and interest, interesting stuff there. Um, Again, I'm not saying that there's a ton more with IndyCar, but yeah, the LMP2 is really, uh, yeah, think of kind of NASCAR Cup, but with a prototype. It's stupidly restricted. Uh, Final question, Ross Porter. Hey, MP, hope you're beginning to feel better. I feel great, Nick. Thank you, other than being tired and drowsy and dumb. Uh, This past week, I was re-watching the St. Pete race because I'm a hopeless addict and noticed some interesting front wing adjustments being made in the pits. I feel like this might have been thrown in last week, Ross, or I don't remember what, but I'll read it again to close because, hey, appreciate you. I noticed the smaller wing bodies on the stack on the front wings being tweaked side to side via individual adjustment points. I've never noticed this before. Is this a new thing teams have developed or have I just missed it? Uh, Would have been something that you missed, Ross. Uh, This has been standard practice for decades, really long time. Uh, Closes by saying, also, do you think the addition of the hybrid system will help offset some of the forward weight, uh, forward sprung weight uh, induced by the aero screen and create a more balanced car? Uh, No, I don't. I think it's going to exacerbate the rear heaviness of the car that has been the problem all along. So the aero screen up front has tipped some of that weight bias back towards the front so in theory that's good but the fact that it sits up so high in the car it makes it real roly-poly it makes it a bit like a ship that is top heavy and swaying uh in the ocean and yeah or, or plunging uh with the bow um just yeah not really what anyone any engineer would or driver would ever ask for in terms of improving handling and performance. So it's not there for those reasons. It's there for safety and how amazing was the season we just had and how many drivers, I'm not saying it's a ton, but there were a handful of drivers enough to say, wow, uh, if it weren't for the aero screen, this could have been a sad year at some points. So well worth the uh, forfeiture of pure performance, my friend. All right. This has been part two, the week in IndyCar, the Marshall Pruitt podcast. Uh, three attempts to get it done. It's finally done. Thank you to all of you for being amazing, sending in a lot of great questions. You know that I love doing this each week, and thanks for coming along for this ride. And if you're still listening, and you got questions and you've never sent them in before, please do. I love seeing new names. Don't be afraid to say, hey, by the way, uh, first time, long time. Um, 
It's always great. Really, really is. Thank you to Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA. I'm going to go get back to watching 12 Hours of Sebring. <laughs>